Good morning. afternoon. Good evening. You are listening to the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 39. It is Friday, the 13th of June. 13th of June. Lucky, unlucky, um, everything suspicious. Um, be careful um, wherever you are in the world. We have uh, taken a little bit of break over the podcasts. Um, we were traveling. We um, were in San Francisco. We were in New York. We were meeting some of the managed Flutter uh, customers. We had a staff retreat in New York just to give you a little bit of an insight into the startup world. So um, unfortunately, um, the podcast has suffered, but we are back and we are going to continue to get these out every two weeks. We have a fantastic show um, lined up for you. Um, we will be talking um, to Sam Lee, who's the co-founder of Bitcoin Reserve. Bitcoin Reserve have a couple of Bitcoin-related products, one of, which, one of which is an arbitrage fund where you can invest um, a minimum of $5,000 and get this the last 11 months that the fund has been in existence. They have returned over 600%. Um, crazy, I know. Um, so we'll talk to him all about the arbitrage fund. Um, and that's coming up a little bit later. And as usual, we got the news and um, two very special guests in the studio. James Peter, who's been living in Canada for the last few months. He's the Managed Flutter co-founder, but uh, he's actually in the studio with us this time. Hello, everyone. Um, and um, we're lucky to have Charles Mathieu, who featured on one of the previous podcasts. We were talking about the Heartbleed Blood. That's I right. Think. Welcome, everybody. Um, and Charles is usually based in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, he's one of our guru engineers working a lot on the managed flutter back end and um, not quite sure what he, he exactly he, he works on, but I see his screen at a command prompt Linux type UI half of the time. So um, I assume you're doing very important bits and pieces. Very, very important. <laughs> so um, we got some of the managed flutter team today and uh we up for a great podcast remember to follow us on twitter monkey podcast email us tweet us we love hearing from you you know special shout out if you're listening to us while you are using manage flitter or you're clicking away on your unfollows or follows or finding people to follow um and let's get straight into it the news as usual um there's been tons of news since we last um, had the podcast. I can't even keep up myself. But one of the significant um, events, which I did want to cover, was Apple had its big conference about a week ago, just over a week ago, I believe. Um, James, talk us through some of the, the the highlights of what was announced. What is changing in the Apple ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. So there was uh, there was quite a lot of stuff that came out of the uh, the Apple announcements. The what is it called? The WWDC. Um, so yeah, there, there were quite a few new things they talked about. Um, so I think people were expecting there might have been some hardware announcements, but um, nothing came out this year. It was entirely software based. So there was quite a lot of talk about updates to um, OS X, their core operating system. Uh, so the new version is going to be called. Um, how do you pronounce it? Yep. Yep. Yosemite? Yosemite. Yosemite, that's it. Yeah, it's the name of that national park in California. Took me a couple of years to. I think if you're not American. It looks like Yosemite. It's, you know, it's hard, to, hard to pronounce. But um, yeah, so they've got a few new things coming out. They're, they're making it uh, much closer to iOS X. Uh, so iOS. So um, the icon look and a lot of the UI stuff is becoming much flatter. 
So that will uh, be, be quite interesting to see how that actually looks um, in the real world. There's some beta versions out already, and they, they look pretty nice. Um, people have said it's a very clean, clean look, so that's pretty cool. Um, they're updating all the usual stuff, making some updates to Spotlight, which are pretty cool. Um, so it's kind of like a you know um, a universal search bar, a bit like you know what Google does, but for the operating system. Um, Safari's got some updates. Um, it's got a bit of a visual refresh. It's becoming much flatter. Um, and yeah, there's quite a few things around sort of continuity. So um, updates between syncing between devices. So for example, you can kind of hand off between your iPhone and your, your Mac really easily now. And you can also do things like create an instant, instant hotspot. So if you are um, using your iPhone and you want to sort of get online really quickly using your data connection, I think it's just like a one-click thing. Um, it's, been, it's, been, it's been relatively easy so far, but it's not like super easy to kind of get up and started with the mobile internet. Um, in fact, the new version, you don't even have to turn it on on your phone. You just can turn it on from your computer um, and, it, and it just works straight away. So that's pretty cool. I'll be using that quite a lot. Um, what about the new Swift language? So that's the new language to build apps, right? Yeah. So they made, they made a few changes for developers. Um, yeah, one of them is Swift, which is, is kind of um, an extension to Objective-C, which, um, which I think is what... All of the iOS apps are built on. They have to be running that, run on that. And uh, yeah, so yeah, so Swift is their their new language. Um, I'm not sure why they built it or, or what the what the purpose is. I think it's to make it more accessible, possibly. I think the idea was to try and get um, a better concurrency story into the iOS platform and other platforms as well. Because currently, you can do uh, concurrency with um, with the tools available, but it's really really hard. So Swift really tries to address concurrency and and almost bringing a scripting kind of feel to uh, to those platforms. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And I, th I think it also helps or at least uh, empowers one of the other features that they're, they're doing, which is uh, enabling um, cross-app cross communication, um, which doesn't sound very much for, uh, like very much, but it's, it's quite powerful. It basically would enable to you to use features from one app into another app. So currently everything's siloed on iOS. So if you're trying to apply sort of filters in Instagram, you can't then use those filters on Facebook. You have to, you know, use entirely separate apps. Facebook has to have their own filters. Whereas now, um, if if both platforms support it, you know, Instagram can basically make their filters accessible through any other app. So, you know, it's almost Facebook like an almost like an API situation. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, ability to to cross cross user stuff, but it's actually using sort of interface elements, which which is really quite cool. Actually, I, I don't, um, I can't really think of any existing sort of um, examples of something with this kind of deep deep integration. Um, definitely not a mobile platform, so it's it's very cool. It's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. There's definitely been quite a big focus, I think, in 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 you know these releases in enabling developers to build more tools. I mean, that's really been the success of iOS so far has been just the the sheer range of apps on it. So um, on Android, they can't have this this app using app story. Not as far as I know. I haven't I haven't never heard of it before. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's all it's all brand new. I mean, it requires obviously quite deep system level, you know, integration to be able to do this stuff. I mean, in there's you know, security issues with doing this because all these these apps are generally siloed. So to do it is actually really quite hard. So I think that's why we haven't seen it before. Um, but obviously, Apple have found some way to do it, you know, safely. So that's cool. Hopefully, they've done it safely. <laughs> Give us a quick um, <clears throat> opinion editorial on. Um, 
what you think some of their announcements. I mean, interesting, disappointing, impressive. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I really like um, so the, the two other two other main things are um, their health kit stuff, which looks very interesting. So there's obviously this growing trend of wearables, you know, Fitbit and you know the Nike Plus and everything. Um, and so that's going to be integrated into the core system now. So you're going to have the health kit, which brings up all these these you know icons. I really like that. that that's very cool. Um, and the other thing is the the home kit, um, which we haven't hasn't been much talk about, but that's also looks really cool. It's kind of um, you know automating your home from your from your iPhone, um, and for Apple to do that and provide that platform, that's going to be really great because currently, if you have any of these automation devices, they all have their own sort of platform and blah blah blah. It's not shared, so um, you know it, you just don't get the one platform. You've got to either go through what, like one provider. Um, whereas now Apple, because Apple's providing that um, software platform, then all the hardware providers can focus on the hardware and they can just integrate into it and you just have it all in one interface and it's all uh, integrated together. Um, so yeah, that could be really cool. You know, in the next couple of years, we might see, you know, the, the, these really sort of cool, um, um, you know, innovative houses and designs that, that, that flow on from this thing. So yeah, it's, it's really opening the doors. So I mean, from the developer point of view, I mean, there's not... Um, I think all this stuff is kind of like just building building a platform to enable things, to, interesting things to happen over the next year. And yeah, it's very exciting for, for Apple to be going that way. You know, I think that's that's always a good good way for companies to go. Just one interesting point on that. I had a look at some interesting security articles now the other day and they were actually saying that they think the next big target for security and hacking and scamming is going to be hacking the home, so to speak. So as soon as software becomes more pervasive in the house for this kind of automation, I suspect there's going to be lots of soft targets available again. Well, what, what about when um, all the, the health, um, you know, the body, um, sort of the health tech stuff and hacking the body? I mean, when Donald Rumsfeld, he's got a pacemaker and they, uh, you know, they switched off some wireless updating facility on his pacemaker because they were always worried about that his pacemaker was going to get hacked. Well, if, if you if you to believe movies and whatnot, you know, all of the technology is out there to hack these things already. So it depends how uh, paranoid you feel about these things. As Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, said, "Only the paranoid survive." <laughs> Sounds like something that Hitler would have said as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, hey. Um, Charles, you you pointed to another interesting story that, um, this week. Tell us about um, some of this biometric, etc. Yep. So a gentleman out of the University of Lund in Sweden, I think, he's uh, basically put together a biometric scanning solution that uses the veins in your hand uh, to process payments. So where you would normally swipe your card or, uh, you know, pay some other way, cash or whatever, now you just... Uh, type in a digit so from what I could see they were using the last few digits of someone's social security number or the last few digits of their phone so that's one part of the secret and the other part of the secret is a little cradle that you put your hand into and this thing then basically scans the veins in your hand so it does some kind of deep scanning in your hand and uh, because all of those are very unique per person plus the addition of the, the code uh, that's that's a good way to actually do this kind of thing why um, how's that different to fingerprints or voice or anything like that? Um, it's just another way to do it. I think the vein scanning might be a, a, lot, a bit easier. Uh, I think with fingerprints, you need a bit more processing to do it. So I think in terms of technology to do it, it's, it's a bit easier to do. Um, and, uh, you know, people feel funny about sticking their... So some of these fingerprint scanners is actually like a thing that you stick your finger into. And humans don't like sticking their fingers into little tubes or putting their eyes up against the reader and stuff. So right. it's a lot less invasive than those technologies. 
I think they should invent um, something that's like a little, you know, like like on Android or it's probably an iPhone as well. Uh, um, you unlock your phone by swiping the design, a signature type thing. They should invent one where you have to do like a little dance. <laughs> you have to do that exact dance to sort of release the, you know, the second, the two, to the two factor off. It, it would certainly be a very entertaining way of paying for things. <laughs> you just see people in front of ATMs just Absolutely doing their crazy dances or when they're paying at the, at the checkout. Yes. Um, currently, it's only rolled out at, in the actual university in the cafes and, uh, and and stuff there. So there's no real commercial product just yet, but it does it does seem interesting. Though it does raise some interesting security issues, like it normally does with biometrics, and that's in terms of organ and and limb harvesting to try and fool these systems. So yeah, uh, you know, there's a bit of a scare around that kind of thing always, uh, especially with uh, retinal scans and if you use fingerprints, you know, people cutting out eyes and cutting off hands and whatnot. But I think you might notice it if somebody uses somebody else's hand to pay for something in a shop. <laughs> you just come in with an extra extra <laughs> lib in your bag. Yeah, it's all, all, always a cat and mouse situation. I mean, have there been any on-record situations where someone's eyes have been cut out or something um, like that? I don't know about eyes, but hands and, and fingers certainly, yes, definitely. In the biometric industry, it's a known, a known problem. It's a known scare. Wow. Okay. Um, Thanks, Charles. So that's some of the news this week. We'll put up links to those stories um, on the show notes. We're going to take a quick break, and afterwards we're going to chat to Sam Lee, who's the co-founder of Bitcoin Reserve. Interesting, there's also a huge Bitcoin um, conference coming up in Melbourne. So Sam's going to be at that conference. I'm going to try attend that conference. I spent um, quite a bit of time in, in New York and San Francisco in May, and uh, Bitcoin um, is really... The, the platform side of Bitcoin is really um, being taken very seriously by, by some very smart people. So uh, Bitcoin is around to stay. So um, stay with us and we'll chat to you, chat to Sam after the break and um, we'll be back after the interview then. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back. Find new people to follow. Track keywords on Twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber and the It's a Monkey podcast. It is Friday, the 13th of June, where we are. It might be a little bit of time difference where you are now. As I mentioned previously in the podcast, I've just spent quite a bit of time in New York and San Francisco, and there is a lot of talk about this animal, Bitcoin. Bitcoin as a currency, Bitcoin as a distributed um, platform of trust. Uh, now, I've discovered some interesting... Melbourne, for, for some reason, is, is uh, you know, down south of, of where we're at, seems to have some interesting Bitcoin activity. And... Um, on the end of my Skype line is Sam Lee, who's the co-founder of Bitcoin Reserve. Now, um, someone sent me through a paragraph a little while ago um, about Bitcoin Reserve. Now, just listen to this. Since lo launching the world's first cryptocurrency arbitrage investment fund just 11 months ago, Australian-based Bitcoin Reserve has generated a, just make sure you're sitting down, 662.3% return on investments for us for its customers. The cryptocurrency arbitrage fund was set up for the specific purpose of taking the volatility out of investing in cryptocurrency and to smooth out fluctuations by contributing liquidity across major Bitcoin exchanges. 
Sam, um, yeah, when I, when I saw that, um, I, I definitely uh, wanted to speak to you and find out more exactly what you guys are doing, how you're doing it, and uh, flesh us in on all the exciting details. <laughs> Wonderful, Kevin. Well, I'm glad uh, that you reached out. And um, uh, to just give you a very brief rundown of what arbitrage is, it's essentially the opportunity to buy low and sell high simultaneously. And that's exactly what we've done with the cryptocurrency arbitrage fund. So because cryptocurrency is the newest and most volatile asset class, it just makes perfect sense for us to um, take an arbitrage um, position and, um, you know, essentially uh, take something that is high risk, high volatility and um, do some arbitrage activities to make it into a managed low-risk investment opportunity. Okay, now let's just let's just talk about um, the mechanics and the legalities. And you know, I know Australia is very strict on who can take money. Um, do you guys have? Is it a, a is it a what what type of financial license do you guys have to be able to take people's money? Well, right now the fund is based in Hong Kong, and for the purpose of us incorporating outside of the Australian uh, legal jurisdiction is simply because Australia has not yet uh, given us the uh, regulatory clarity required for us to um, uh, operate on the long term. So Hong Kong's already uh, already uh, got all that sorted. Now, the, uh, the reason this is an Australian fund is because the three co-founders of this arbitrage fund at Bitcoin Reserve are all Australian. Okay, but if I, as an Australian-based um, investor, I want to put money in, it just I put it I put it into an Australian vehicle, or it goes into a Hong Kong vehicle. It'll go into an offshore Hong Kong vehicle. It'll just act as any other uh, offshore investment and. Uh, Basically, the gains that you uh, make from the fund uh, will then be tax uh, taxable once it comes into Australia as an uh, offshore uh, investment capital gains. So as long as uh, people declare their gains, it's all it's all above board and it's all fine, and the Australian authorities are all sort of fine with everything that's happening. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So tell us a little bit more about the smarts behind it. I mean, is this is this all algorithmic trading? Is this all high high frequency trading, or or is it um, you know value based, subjective humans involved in all of these decisions on the trading side? Well, um, at this moment, it is high frequency comparable to what uh, is in existence in the cryptocurrency space. So. Um, in terms of the high frequency in the, for instance, the current Forex and currency market, we're talking about uh, thousands of trades a second. Um, that's not currently possible uh, in the Bitcoin ecosystem simply because the API uh, that we're connecting up to across these multiple exchanges cannot support that kind of load. Uh, just remember this. Uh, cryptocurrency Bitcoin has only been ex in existence since 2009. 
So this is still early days. There's a lot of infrastructure to be built. And because this is early days and, um, and because of a lack of infrastructure, there is a huge market inefficiency as a result of that, which allows us to capitalize on this arbitrage opportunity. Now, do you arbitrage between different cryptocurrencies or timing differences between the same cryptocurrency or both? Well, at this moment, we've been mostly arbitraging between Bitcoins across a number of exchanges. We have started arbitraging Litecoins, uh, but that's more or less on a trial basis, simply because there is very little volume um, in amongst all the other altcoins, which is alternate currencies, such as Litecoins, etc., um, to be arbitraged between. Um, now... Who are some of the investors um, in your fund? Are they individuals? Are they institutions? What's the typical profile of investor? At this moment, um, they're mostly they're mostly individuals, um, and they're because prior to co-founding Bitcoin's Reserve with my partners, um, I, along with one of our other partners, Alan, uh, have been in the real estate industry. Uh, you know, in real estate sales and development. And uh, through that, um, we have an, a network of uh, quite high-profile, uh, high-network individuals uh, that came out of mainland China. Um, and they're always looking for investment opportunities. Uh, to uh, in this fund, uh, our initial uh, couple of investors, um, you know, large investors, have actually been mostly from mainland China. Now, um, I was interested to see on your information page that um, the, the funds only have to be with you for a minimum of 30 days, and then after that you can call on them at any time? Uh, that is correct. Uh, we keep it 30 days simply because that's usually how long it'll take for us to show some kind of results from the volatility. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, we want to make this fund as liquidable as possible because we understand that some people, after investing, uh, are then are very interested in bitcoins. And if they become believers, they want to be able to pull their money out um, just before the next uh, big run-up <laughs> of bitcoins. Now, how how risky is it? I mean, people might be someone might be listening to this podcast and think, uh, you know, I've got. Uh, Granny's got some money saved up. I mean, it's it's. I mean, you're essentially trading on volatility, which means it, it it's intrinsically incredibly risky. What what type of risk profile would you would you say um, is this fund appropriate for? Well, um, I believe risk is very subjective. The a risk if you don't know anything about something is very high, uh, but if you do know how to manage risk effectively, it then becomes quite low. So arbitrage is actually one of the most, um, the fund is actually one of the most, uh, uh, I guess, uh, is on the lower end of a risk scale when you compare it to other investment opportunities in cryptocurrency. Uh, so for instance, Bitcoins can go up to $10,000 or it could go back down to $1. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, I wouldn't know. 
but arbitrage at the end of the day will be able to generate cash on cash return every single month over the past 11 months has been returning a positive result simply because uh, we don't trade when it's not profitable to do so okay now the old adage and i'm sorry to be so cynical and but um, I, <laughs> I need to uh, you know show all sides of the the story the old adage of if it's too good to be true it probably is i mean your returns are are insane. Uh, people have access to their money. I mean, what's someone would ask, you know, what's the catch? What's the downside? Um, so if the returns are insane and people don't have access to their money, it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> but uh, the reason why um, the returns are too good to be true is simply because this is early days. We are the first cryptocurrency arbitrage fund out there um, and there probably are other people doing arbitrage but not on um, of a technical um, and automated level that we are doing it at um, and at the end of the day uh, there are risks uh, as with anything and there's uh, in our prospectus two full pages of them um, for instance uh, there's a risk that the exchanges that we select uh, might essentially fold and, and go into bankruptcy. Um, now that would mean a, a loss of a portion of assets that, uh, of the fund that we have on that exchange. And there's also the risk that uh, the entire internet will go down. Well, if the internet goes down, then um, bitcoins won't be worth anything. <laughs> but I'm sure if that happens, we've got more pressing matters to worry about. Um, yeah, look, I think I think the internet going down is probably more of a, a distant risk. But I think the fact of exchanges collapsing is, I mean, you know, there's already been one collapse of the exchange. But, you know, the fact that Bitcoin con lives on is almost testament to the to the strength of Bitcoin. But just to be clear, if someone is thinking of investing, I mean, their, ma their money can go to zero. So like with all investments, and we're certainly not giving investments advice on this program, we're not licensed <laughs> to... But um, if you are thinking, just, you know, always, always buy a be beware. Sam, um, I want to talk to you in general just about, I mean, Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin, there's the two components. There's the, the currency components and there's the platform yes. distributed trust components. A lot of smart people in, in New York and in the Valley are, are incredibly bullish about um, where the platform is going to take us. What are what are your views about uh, the place in the future of the Bitco Bitcoin as a distributed trust platform? Well, um, this is really an evolution in um, what the internet has brought us. Uh, a currency as a uh, Bitcoin as a currency, it's quite useful um, after you've applied uh, what the platform has brought. But we're talking about in the future. Um, the platform allowing us to create decentralized stock exchanges, um, uh, you know, kind of almost like a bit of a uh, hive mind component where you don't really need to go through um, all the legalities and the paperwork um, to essentially, uh, essentially start issuing out your own stocks. So, um, for sure, it will allow startups to move a lot quicker um, leveraging such a platform moving forward. But um, there will be, uh, I guess, a lot of um, unscrupulous people uh, trying to take advantage of that. And, um, you, you know, it's just similar to 
um, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> pushing penny stocks on pink slips. Uh, there could be a, a phase where a lot of people will be pushing, um, you know, unregistered securities uh, that are based on, uh, you know, this new platform uh, um, to, to some, you know, very unfortunate people that really don't have all that much to lose. I think it's almost uh, it's almost like the early days of the internet. We we're not quite sure where um, all of this is going to land up, but there's a definite sentiment that it is significant, and there will be significant developments around this. And um, I mean, you guys are doing something interesting. What's your? I mean, you're a startup. I mean, what what's your business model around this? Is it a management fee? Is it a success fee based on returns? What is your business model around this um, this particular fund? Yeah, um, so just like a standard hedge fund, we have a 30% performance fee. Um, and that means if we make $100 for a customer, uh, 30 of that will become ours. Nice um, margin. <laughs> that, 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 that's why the hedge fund people in New York sort of run the city. They're running on nice margins. If things go right, of course. Of course, of course. Uh, and if things go wrong, they, uh, they still take their uh, 2% management fee. <laughs> it's a good model. Yeah, um, so our model is uh, we don't actually take a management fee because we actually are believers. We believe what we built is something that works. Um, our success, fee, sorry, our performance fees are uh, slightly higher than uh, your standard New York hedge funds. And that's because, um, they're, they're, for instance, one portfolio manager over there manages $50 million. <laughs> Three co-founders of Bitcoin's reserve and our fund hasn't even reached $50 million yet. It's still far, far away. <laughs> so, well, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, maybe this podcast will uh, you know, generate some excitement. But, but tell me, Sam, you guys have some other cryptocurrency products. Just run me through some of those as well. Some of them seem pretty interesting. So um, we supply a lot of the local exchanges and uh, local Bitcoin traders with their liquidity. So if they, for instance, run into an order that uh, they're having, um, I guess, uh, liquidity issues to fill, we're able to supply that to them as we've got uh, consistently uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting on exchanges ready to be traded at any one time. Um, so that's more of the over counter and procurement model. Um, we've also uh, negotiated free mining, uh, Bitcoin mining uh, manufacturer, uh, manufacturers, and uh, we'll be bringing in mining rigs in November this year. Um, ATMs are also in the pipeline as well. Uh, we're working with Bitrocket um, to put together a, um, a kind of franchise model around ATMs. So that'll be interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if things unfold well, uh, we hope to be, uh, <laughs> you know, the ones running the largest ATM network um, globally for uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. Do you know that in New York, there's a uh, gold, an, an ATM that dispenses gold on 57th Street? You can buy it for whatever the, the spot rate is for that little bar, about 1200 bucks, and you, it pops out a little, a little gold nugget for you? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. So the benefits of a Bitcoin ATM is I'm able to top up the ATM remotely without actually physically uh, driving an armored truck to go there, collecting money or collecting that gold bar. 
Huge, uh, I mean, huge benefit. Huge. Gold, but <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no, uh, there's no hard currency that needs to be moved around. That's right. That's right. So uh, that's one of the um, major benefits when you compare Bitcoin to gold, and that's why uh, it's got a bit of a nickname as Gold 2.0. I mean, it's not very accurate, but um, we'll live with it anyways. <laughs> um, Sam, you're going to be talking at the Inside Bitcoin Conference and Expo, which is coming up in Melbourne on the 9th and 10th of July. Um, I think it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to be there myself, um, seeing what the, the latest and greatest um, around all the Bitcoin innovation is. How come uh, there seems to be a little bit of a skew in Bitcoin innovation down in Melbourne? Any, the Sydney, any theories why that's happening? Well, um, I guess... To be honest, it's just we've got a lot of passionate people pushing this out there. Um, so it's a bit of a snowball effect. And uh, to have a monthly Bitcoin meetup that provides free food and drinks. <laughs> I think I think we need to get one going here in Sydney and uh, fly you up. And, um, you know, because because this, yeah, a lot, a lot of the Bitcoin startups are down in Melbourne. Are you guys are you guys funded, self-funded? What's what's the um, situation with um, your company? Well, if we were to accept uh, any form of investment right now, um, we feel that uh, um, it will be. Uh, pricing our, um, you know, pricing the company's value quite cheaply, um, and because the uh, primary uh, profit generator right now is the arbitrage engine, um, a part of the arbitrage fund, uh, it, it is essentially a, um, uh, you know, a startup that requires zero capital. So, um, so, so you yeah. guys have, boot, so you you guys have bootstrapped this. Yeah, that's at, correct. Until the day. Well, uh, let's... Not uh, forever. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, well, it's, um, you seem to be doing interesting things. I mean, uh, the, you know, the scrappier end of the startup world is where all the exciting bits and pieces happened. Uh, you know, a lot of the... Uh, everything from Google to Facebook to, to Twitter to Bitcoin happens on the fringes initially. So um, I'll be following what you guys are up to with, with great interest. If you are interested more about Bitcoin, just check out the conference in Melbourne, 9th and 10th of July, Inside Bitcoin's Conference and Expo. We'll put a link up on the um, the sort of podcast, um, the, the show notes. Sam Lee from um, Bitcoin Reserve, the co-founder, Really appreciate you joining us. I love the I love the startup effect that you know life as a, a new startup is complex. So you're doing the interview from a little cupboard in a shopping center in Melbourne because you're on the road talking to customers. I love you know I, I love the scrappy end of the startup world. So I, I hope you guys go on to to great things, and I look forward to staying in touch. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thanks, Sam. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Um, 600 and something percent 
return. Um, too good to be true, but they're doing it. Yeah, it seems kind of crazy. I, I mean, the one thing one thing I still don't understand is how how does it work? I'm, I'm not sure if it was clearly explained. I, I don't... Um, so they use the volatility of Bitcoin in order to do returns? So it's essentially just capitalizing on the volatility to buy low and sell high and the and the and the patterns the patterns around it. So if the stocks or the or the, the currencies are bouncing around all over the place and there's there's patterns in um, if they know that it, it, it peaks and then drops and they see these patterns so they, they can they know when to um, they know when it's on the way up and they know when it's on the way down and they can see when that's about to happen and these algorithms work that out and they're just churning through this algorithmic trading the whole time. That's so my that's my understanding. Yeah, so, so arbitrage in terms of normal uh, money trading, I understand, because you use multiple different units of money and the different um, exchange rates between all of those and that's how you do your arbitrage. I'm also a little bit confused how they're going to do this with Bitcoin. So is it... Are there, are there different kinds of rates trading between the different exchanges? Yes. Okay, well, then that's probably what they're going to be <laughs> doing then. So so the, the, the different um, Bitcoin exchanges, there's anomalies in the rate at the different Bitcoin exchanges. So, for instance, if, if let's forget about Bitcoin for a moment. If you, um, for instance, sometimes if you go to developing countries and you want to change American dollars, the one person will offer you you know five local currency and the other one six dollars local currency and then you can buy from the one selling it um, cheap and sell to the one selling it high all right that makes sense so it's basically just given the fact that you know what the rates are across different exchanges you basically just yeah it's it's obvious right yeah buy buy cheap from one place and sell sell for less sell high sell sell high buy low sell high buy low sell high yeah yeah don't get it the wrong way around, James. <laughs> Damn it, life savings go. <laughs> so, so what's involved with getting involved with with a specific uh, crowd down in Melbourne? Well, I mean, as you said, they are uh, Hong Kong based. Um, you know, they the entity is Hong Kong based, um, and you're actually buying into this 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 Hong Kong based fund. And um, I'm not sure if the laws are more lenient in Hong Kong because to accept money. In Australia, as a deposit-taking type institution, is is a quite a um, complex thing to do, and it's you have to get specific financial licenses, and it's it's obviously a very um, you know you have to there's just prospectuses and all sorts of things, and you and you pretty much assuming quite a lot of risk. So um, they seem to be sidestepping that somehow that they 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 in Hong Kong. Um, and then it's a minimum of five thousand um, dollars that you have to keep with them for a month. So how would that how would that compare to other kinds of arbitrage um, solutions that aren't Bitcoin based? Would you also be putting in about five k, or can you start with a lot less? Look, typically any hedge fund type operation um, tends to the the minimums tend to be a lot larger. They tend to be aimed at high net worth individuals or. Um, they tend to be aimed at institutions, so the minimums often are, you know, crazy amounts, you know, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars, and things like that. I think because, um, y- you know, it's a you need some exposure to make money. If if you even in the hedge fund industry, if you make thirty percent a year, it's it's a good return. But 
if there's 30% on $10,000 is still a, you know a low amount of, of of dollar profit so that's why it's a bit of a bit of a volume play um, but maybe they, they're just starting out and they're just getting going and um, you know they still they're making 30% margin which is which is huge especially if you're earning you know nearly 700% and you're making 30% on the on the money um, you know it's, it's a huge huge profit margin but um, if you are listening to the show um, yeah, don't don't put your life savings in there because, as they said, one of the risks is the exchanges could go bankrupt. And you know, if they've got owning some assets in some of these exchanges, um, then profits gone. And of course, Mount Gox was one of the exchanges in Japan that went bankrupt a little while ago. Uh, interesting enough, I was reading an article about that in a class action suit that was so, um, this, that was uh, brought against them, and it looks like somebody else has stepped in and taken over the the risk on the Mount Gox side, and they're going to try and pay all these people out and still make it a make it a, another exchange again. So it's interesting that somebody's seeing some kind of benefit behind all of that. Well, I, I guess there's value in the brand name. There's obviously va- some value in the assets. Um, you know, a typical sort of bankrupt company, maybe where where people try to come in and 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 bring it back to life. Um, but the interesting thing is, despite this, the Mt. Gox collapse, Bitcoin has continued on, which is a, a sign of the success and the flexibility of the system, just like the internet. Um, James, where you're at, I know, I know, long ago you were, you've always been bullish on on bitcoin but you you've been quite more interested on the the currency side of things as a as a value of exchange yeah i mean i think bitcoin as a whole is probably entering um you know it's trying to find its stability you know this mount gox stuff obviously definitely hit the the ecosystem pretty hard i mean it's starting to to raise back up i haven't actually looked at the prices for a while but i, I think they've been on the rise a little bit slowly um yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't would invest huge amounts in it, but I still think um, I still think it's going to you know take over a lot of our a lot of our payment systems. Not necessarily Bitcoin itself, but um, something that comes after it. But um, yeah, I'm still still bullish on it. I, I'm quite interested in the the broader impact of it um, as as a distributed platform of of trust. I think, as someone um, described it, you know, this this public ledger and the blockchain and 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 and, and the whole sort of platform infrastructure and what you'll be able to layer on top of that seems to be quite interesting. I'm still I'm still trying to really digest it in a way that I really understand the total ins and outs of it. I still am not totally comfortable with it, but um, it's starting to come to light a little bit don't you guys think that um governments are going to be very opposed to this as a way because it potentially is a way to erode the current currencies and the current value of the current currencies and there's no way to control this really because it's decentralized i think at some stage there's gonna governments have to going to get involved in all of this at some level to try and either control it or to to you know to make some sense out of this I think the biggest thing that they're worried about, I mean, the Fed in the U.S. was created after, I think it was it was before the 1927 or 30 crash. It was after the 1908 or something. There was there was some run on the banks that caused literally panic and, and, and violence in the street. And the Fed was literally created to, um, you know, create a stable environment, which is incredibly important to do business. And if this bypasses it and it becomes a, and a very important asset class and the stability is, is there's no stability in the system, 
well, then you, you can be back to a similar sort of situation where runs on the banks and, and things like that can happen, which, um, you know, we all hate the banks, but we actually, whether we like, think it or not, we actually do like the stability in the system. I think the other important point is that, um, you know, Bitcoin is theoretically at least, um, well, to some degree, theoretically, um, you know, anonymous and, you know, it, it pretty much comes down to being, you know, um, just a, agreement between two people or, or two parties to exchange funds between them, you know, when you when you perform big Bitcoin transactions. Um, so or to have any any transactional exchange. It doesn't have to yeah. be Bitcoins. Yeah, so it's, it's all decentralized. So it has, you know, exactly the same issues for government regulation that... Um, that um, torrenting does. I mean, it's basically to a certain degree impossible. Like you know, you can you can certainly get some way along it, and you can definitely um, remove kind of legitimate enterprises from doing it. But if um, the value proposition is strong enough, then um, then uh, you know it's always go- it's always going to occur. Um, and yeah, I, d- I don't think I don't think um, you know, obviously it can't be a global thing either. So, you know, like you might have like one government somewhere might, you know, you know, legislate against it, but it's gonna, it's not going to stop it. It will definitely, it will definitely keep going. I, I think now that we've got decentralized currency, it's just, just going to continue. There's, there's no way it's going to, um, going to be stopped, I think. Well, the way I see it is similar to the internet, right? I mean, it, it serves the country's interest in a way that that media was semi-centralized or centralized enough that, for example, content, illegal content could not be published very easily or it could be easily identified. Um, now, it's still illegal to access certain content on the net, for instance, but it's there and it's going to continue to be there and you can't pull it pull it out so while there's similarities in terms of the decentralized nature of it you know there's a big difference between when you're talking currencies and you're talking communication networks i think when money comes into play you have all kinds of things that you have to worry about especially with the decentralized currency like this you know fraud um hacking all that kind of stuff become real problems and to a, to a certain extent in terms of our currencies, the, the banks or the legislation in countries protect us from some of that stuff. So, you know, the question is, where is this protection going to come from? Is every single person going to be responsible for their own little bit of, uh, you know, uh, decentralized uh, uh, money protection or whatnot? Or, or is there somebody going to step in and, and do something for people? Well, the beauty of being an open source type platform is, in theory, the right services will be layered on top of this. Yeah, I, I think there's actually a lot of opportunity for that. I think we'll probably over the next couple of years we'll, we'll definitely see services that integrate into into Bitcoin pla- into Bitcoin's protocol itself to um, to ensure you know to, to provide insurance, I guess, against this kind of stuff. Um, it's definitely theoretically possible, and there's and there's there are some companies that are trying to do it, um, and there's definitely ways that you can perform transactions that that to kind of protect yourself and the other party from from fraud and um, you know um, in our existing systems we kind of have like chargebacks and other ways to kind of get your money back if things do go, do go wrong and you know theoretically all this stuff is possible also within Bitcoin providing everybody um, you know agrees to it to both both parties agree to it during the transaction so yeah it's you know in many ways it's it's um, it's going to be a much better system because you know these you know chargebacks you know it's the entire system is incredibly archaic it doesn't work very well there's all kinds of issues with it and you just can't innovate on it because you have all these you know ingrained institutions that have the, f- the complete control over it whereas with bitcoin it's up to anybody you know any any uh, private entity 
entity could come along with a better solution and um, and you know they could very quickly you know take over so yeah I think there's lots of lots of opportunities there I think I think you make a very important point about the the, the system's inability to innovate I think that's a significant problem and it's the reason why companies like like Square and PayPal have managed to sort of take a little chip out of it but uh, it's it's a little bit like the the airline industry for a variety of re- reasons has struggled to innovate. I mean, we're still using more or less the same planes as 50 years ago. That's problematic in my view. Um, but I think the important bit as well is if if um, stability is the issue, and the, you know the, the the federal banks of the world, and the central banks of the world, were set up to create the stability. Well, in theory, something eventually would be layered up and on top of Bitcoin, I'm not sure how or what, but that would address that. I mean, you know, these systems are, are these open source systems are supposed to be self-correcting in that type of way, and that's supposed to be its strength, so that it will iterate in a way that it will, will iron itself out. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, interesting times ahead. Um, thanks to my two special co-hosts today, James Peter and Charles Mathieu. You can catch them both on Twitter, although I don't think either of them tweets that much. I tweeted something today. I did tweet today. Did you? First for first read a week, yeah. Sort of ironic I, that, that, you know, people involved with the Twitter management platform. I think I'm the one that, that tweets the most. But th- I noticed quite a few people at Twitter that I follow as well also aren't huge tweeters. Actually, you should go check out what I, what I tweeted. There's this, um, there's this new. Uh, do you ever read the Onion? You know, the, I've seen bits yeah, and pieces. Onion, yeah. yeah. So there's this. They've just launched a new site. It's called um, Clickhole, and the idea is it's basically to generate just unashamedly viral content. So it's just like the complete lowest denominator of content, just you know, just just begging for clicks, and it's just like completely ba- um, bane banal. How do you pronounce that word? Banal. Banal. And, yeah, it's just ridiculous. It's definitely worth checking out. It's just how crazy it is. And it's actually so, it's so bad. And, and even when I was reading the article, I was like, yeah, I would share this. And I felt really bad about it. But it's just really well done. It's definitely worth, worth checking hey, out. Hey, if they, if they scored a tweet out of you, a rare tweet out of you. Exactly, yeah. It was good enough for me to tweet about them. So they, they've, done, they've done what they aim to do. So I think it only launched like today or something too. So it's very, very new. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, Charles, we'll talk to you sometime back on the podcast when you're in the, um, the southern point of Africa. Sounds good. I'll talk to you from Cape Town. In, in fact, there's someone we're going to have on the podcast that I met in New York. She works for a not-for-profit in New York that takes technology from Israel into Africa to make life easier for some of the tricky parts of Africa. And um, she promised to be on the podcast. So when I get her uh, on the line... Um, we'll drag you in and we'll talk about all things Africa. Absolutely. It'd be sound great to see what kind of tech solutions they have that they want to roll out into Africa. Great. Thanks. And to everyone listening, Friday the 13th, have a good one. I hope it's a lucky Friday the 13th. Tweet us, email us. Please tell your friends about the podcast and we will catch you in two weeks.